Hi guys and welcome to the 14th episode of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. As usual, you're joined by myself, Jack and Tierra. And today we're bringing you another Q&A podcast episode. And yeah, we've got some really great questions as usual. And yeah, no specific order really. Like I know we've done a sports nutrition one, but yeah, we're just going to read them read them out in chronological order. So first up is a question by Georgia saying I eat in a calorie deficit, but my fitness pal says I'm going over my recommended sugar intake. Will this affect the rate of my fat loss? The sugar is from fruit and muesli. All right. So when we're thinking about this, I think the main thing Georgia highlighted was that she is in an energy deficit. And as we know, if you're in an energy deficit, you are going to lose weight regardless of whatever your macronutrient distribution ratio is because your body is deprived of energy. And they've shown in the literature that there is nothing inherently special about sugar. It's not going to restrict you from losing weight. Also, you mentioned that on my fitness pal, it's saying that you are exceeding your recommended daily sugar intake. Now, Jack and I actually looked at both of our my fitness pals to see what generally that recommendation is, and they're different. And I think that my fitness pal bases it off a percentage of either your total amount of carbohydrates you eat during the day or the total amount of calories. And Jack and I did a few quick calculations and both of ours came out to be around 15% of our carbohydrate intake was dedicated solely to sugar. Now that is not some sort of, you know, magic number that everyone has to abide by. Yeah, I think what they're trying to do basically is um, set a limit or a recommendation around your sugar because ultimately sugar is devoid of nutritional value. So say if you're having like a teaspoon of sugar in your tea, those carbohydrates could be used for something with more like, I guess, micronutrients in it, such as brown rice or vegetables or something like that. And the other factor that MyFitnessPal probably calculates is that most foods very high in sugar or that contain sugar might be also very high in energy and a lot of people that use my fitness pal are trying to lose weight so if they set a limit on the sugar then people will be less inclined to eat foods very dense in sugar such as ice cream pastry lollies etc which are high in energy so yeah exactly that's a really good point and i think that also one disadvantage of my fitness pal taking this approach is that like you alluded to georgia it doesn't take into account the natural sugars found in things like fruit so you could eat an abundance of fruit during the day and yes on my fitness pal you are exceeding your sugar intake but you are also providing yourself with a bunch of different nutrients polyphenols you are having a lot of fiber there. You know, fruit is very hydrating as well. Fruit is a very nutritious food, but my fitness pal is not going to necessarily differentiate between the sugar from fruit and the sugar from, let's say, a Coca-Cola or a slice of cake. But in essence, if you're in an energy deficit, there is nothing about sugar that is going to stop you from losing weight as long as you've got all your other bases covered. Yep. So we'll move on to the next question from Kenja, which is also about uh, energy deficit. So if I eat a high carb diet, but I'm still in a calorie deficit, can I lose weight? What happens if your glycogen stores are full? Where does the rest of the carbs go? 
Yeah, so this is actually a really good question. It kind of made me think. So first off, again, like we just said, if you're in an energy deficit, no matter where your calories or macros are coming from, you're gonna lose weight. But if you are eating a very high carb diet, then that is sending more glucose to your muscles, so you are more likely to have, um, your glycogen stores are more likely to be full. But if you are in an energy deficit, I think it would be quite unlikely that your glycogen stores would be would reach like maximum capacity. Yeah, yeah maximum capacity because some of the research shown in endurance athletes is that to actually reach maximum capacity for glycogen storage, you need to eat something like 12 grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight. And that is a lot of carbohydrates. And for the average person, that is going to throw you out of an energy deficit, especially if you are eating enough protein there and you're also reaching enough fat as well in your diet. So I think it's pretty unlikely that your glycogen stores are going to be 100% full. But also in relation to where do the rest of the carbs go? Well, yeah, you're obviously you have uh, glucose in your bloodstream. You have um, glycogen in your muscles. You also have glycogen stored in your liver as well. And we have to remember that glucose is the preferred fuel source for basically every single cell in our body. So it goes much further than you know just providing our muscles with energy. Our brain needs glucose. Every single cell in order for you to stay alive needs glucose. So I guess that's where the rest of the carbohydrates are going, just <laughs> keeping you alive. Yep. So yeah, moving on to the third question. What, uh, this one's by Kyle. What's the optimal amount of calories to drop per week on a competition prep? I would say this is a very individualized answer, so I won't give like a very specific answer. So so let's say that one of your competitors stalled in weight loss, you know, and you didn't want to necessarily implement cardio yet. You didn't want to change their training. You didn't want to change their steps. How would you manipulate their macronutrients and their calories? So depending on what their macronutrients and calories currently are, when we're in a prep, we really want to be focusing on losing weight between 0.5 to 1% of total body weight per week. So obviously, the leaner you get and the lighter you are, the less amount will be optimal to lose because if you lose more than that, you will be risking hindering performance and risking muscle more muscle loss as well. So preferentially, I would take away fats first because carbs are preferential for training. So, and I would probably bring that down to maybe even around, depending on how they're hormonally functioning functioning and how they're feeling, maybe even as low as 0.3 grams per kilo of body weight for fats. Mm-hmm. But remember, that's just, that's just for that specific point in their prep. That's definitely mm. not permanent. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, right now, for example, Tiara and I both have our fats at around one, one gram. gram per kilo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I would definitely wouldn't recommend staying at 0.3 grams per kilo. And then once we basically drop as much fat as we can, um, then we would probably move on to dropping carbohydrates. And yeah, but say if someone stores in weight, I would probably look be looking at a minimum of a hundred calorie drop each week. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think anything under a hundred calories just isn't going to make much of a difference because I think anything under a hundred calories is very difficult to track, especially considering all variables and how you know every single day is different. 
someone's body could, depending on how much NEAT they have, like non-exercise activity thermogenesis, or you know, perhaps if it was a leg day compared to an upper body day or whatever, it's quite easy to burn about 100 calories more on a given day. So I think if you're doing anything below that, it would just be so hard to track, so. Yeah, plus you also have to look at the um, error of measurement in calculating calories, especially if you eat different foods each day. You could be off by 100 calories each day just because, I'm not sure if everyone knows this, but when companies create nutrition information panels, so that's basically the thing that appears on MyFitnessPal, they only have to be within 25% accuracy. Yeah, which is crazy. So, for example, that could be like a 100-calorie snack it would either be 125 calories or it could be 75 calories. And adding up things like that across the day, that can make a really big difference. Mm. Yeah, which is why, yeah, it's a controversial topic, but personally, I prefer to see my clients eat relatively similar things each day or at least things that are more wholesome just because you risk that inaccuracy if you do crazy IFYM and eat like go out to different places or eat different packaged goods each day. Yeah, you are just scanning random barcodes every day like oh my god it's going to be so hard to actually hit your numbers accurately. There's going to be huge variations there. Mm. Yeah, so that's that question done. We'll move on to the next one. All right, so the next one is building muscle on keto versus carbs. And that was asked by Tahir Kendi. All right, so building muscle on keto versus carbs. Where would you start with this? So just, yeah, I think it's quite a simple answer, really. There's one primary reason why carbs would be preferential to purely fat, and that is just because carbs is the preferential fuel source during anaerobic exercise, uh, which is what weightlifting is. So keto just isn't going to provide you with anything comparable energy-wise compared to carbs. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, like Jack said, the main thing is here is really exercise performance because we know that in order to grow muscle, you need to give your muscles a stimulus to grow bigger and to grow stronger. And carbohydrates in the form of glucose are the preferred source of fuel for our muscle cells. And if you have more glycogen stores, if you have more circulating glucose, then you are going to be able to maintain a higher level of exercise intensity. So this could like, you know, over time, the difference between on bench press for a given weight, being able to maybe do six reps compared to be able to do 10 or 12 reps. For example, six reps would be if you were on a ketogenic diet because you just don't have the stamina there compared to higher carbohydrate diet where you could do 10 or 12, over time you're gonna continuously provide your muscles with more stimulus and more reason to grow. Mm -hmm. Also, with a ketogenic diet, Jack and I have touched on this before in other podcasts, but people need to recognize a ketogenic diet is a very, very, very high fat diet. So around 80% of your total calories are coming from fat. That leaves only around 15% of your calories coming from protein and 5% of your calories coming from carbohydrates. Now, if you look at the general protein recommendations for building muscle, let's just say around two grams per kilogram, for the average person, only 15% of their total calories 
is not going to equate to two grams per kilogram of protein in order to build that muscle. So again, over time, you will probably be, you will be consuming insufficient amounts of protein. You're just not putting yourself in the most anabolic environment following a ketogenic diet and trying to maximally get as big as you can. Mm. The only final point I'll add is like, if you're literally mainly eating fat and fat is stored as fat, so any sort of weight gain you'll be getting is going to be fat. And like, obviously there'll be some muscle in there because you are providing a stimulus with exercise. But like, that's just another way of thinking about it, which to me is a little bit depressing. Whereas like with carbs, you can fill out and have weight associated with glycogen and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, if you're on keto, then it's just going to be fat. And God, can I just say, who the hell wants to sacrifice potatoes and oats for the rest of their life? Not me. (laughs) Actually, I think this leads on really nicely into another question. So this question was asked again by Kenja. So she said, hey, Tiara, I'm trying to work out if my body works best on a higher fat diet or a higher carb diet because I came across this person who preaches that eating a diet high in carbs is best because if you overeat on carbs, they won't get stored as body fat. Now, this person sent me a picture of what um, this influencer had posted on their page, and I'm just gonna quickly read this out because I thought it was very interesting. All right, so it says, I thought the carbs make you fat. The body's preferred source of fuel is glucose, which comes from carbs, which comes from rice. So your body upon consuming this veggie sushi is going to burn that sushi as fuel. Now, let's say that this sushi is really good and you overeat just a tad bit. No worries. The excess carbohydrates will be stored invisibly in the liver and muscles as glycogen. All that means is that you'll be a bit less hungry the next day. These extra carbs do not get stored as fat. That process is known as de novo lipogenesis. It is a process well performed by pigs and cows, but us humans, we're not so great at it. Our bodies do not want to store carbohydrates as fat. It's just too taxing of a process. So instead, we burn all those carbs. (laughs) Okay. So we need to touch on a few of these things here. So first, let's touch on de novo lipogenesis. So Jack, can you just give a brief um, explanation? What is de novo lipogenesis? So basically, de novo lipogenesis is a conversion of non-fat sources such as carbohydrates and amino acids into fat. And humans can obviously do that process. Yes, I think there is an entire obesity epidemic to prove this. <laughs> okay, people aren't just drinking oil, people are drinking very sugary slushies, putting them in large energy surpluses, and yes, they're a little bit fat. Yeah, I think I don't want to hate on this influencer too much because sort of what she's like, sort of the gist of what she's saying is right in the sense that if you eat fat, it will be stored as fat. Whereas if you eat carbohydrates, there is the potential for it to be stored as glycogen. But if you eat in an energy surplus, it's still gonna be converted to fat. Yeah, exactly. So it is, it's not the most efficient metabolic pathway in the human body, of course, but like Jack said, it still definitely has the potential to happen. So you can't just completely dismiss the fact that oh no, even if I overeat on carbohydrates, there's no way that I'm going to gain body fat. 
I also just want to touch on that she said that this glycogen will be stored invisibly in the liver and the muscle. <laughs> I don't know what, in, just because we can't see it with our eyes doesn't mean that it's not there. And maybe not so much for the liver. I've never seen a liver pump, but I sure as hell have seen a bicep pump. So I'd say I have seen <laughs> glycogen storage. <laughs> All right, so we are going to move on to another question. So this one is from Lawrence. He said, what is your favorite muscle group to train and which specific exercise? So mine would probably be different based on whether I'm, actually, whether I'm in the session or whether it's like after the session or the next day. And if I'm actually training in the session, then it would probably be chest or arms, I would say. Actually, no, just chest. And probably just flat barbell bench would be one of my favorites. And yeah, the reason behind that is it's just, it's not as, I would say it's, it's quite easy to go to failure for me on chest and not be overly taxed. Whereas legs on the other hand, it's really, really difficult in the session. And like you're contemplating whether you can finish the workout, but after the session, you get a massive endorphin rush and you just feel really good about having completed that. But then you also think you have to do it two more leg days next week. But. Yeah, I swear there's something about training upper body that's just not nearly as intimidating or scary as training lower body. Like I'd never get nervous for a bench press or an overhead press, but holy shit, like I walk to the gym on lower body day and I would be so scared and so nervous about doing squats. I, I don't know what's with that. I wonder, do you th is that a normal thing? Do you experience that too? Yeah, when I used to squat a bit heavier, but yeah. I'm sure I'll experience it in no time. Freaking hell, yeah. There's some exercises that just scare the shit out of me, but it feels so good when you do them. <laughs> um, mine would probably, uh, it's it's a 50-50, um, so there's definitely a tie here. One is I love training glutes, and I love doing barbell hip thrusts. Just, man, I love them so much. I could do them every session if my glutes allowed, but right now I do them every second session. <laughs> and second exercise, I love shoulder press. I love training shoulders. Oh, damn, actually, frick. I, I know there's just one. Um, I either love dumbbell shoulder press or I love battle ropes. I absolutely love battle ropes. They give me a feeling like no other. I just... Damn, it's awesome to slam some ropes. Sweet. Okay, so this is another question. We've actually never had one like this before. It says, how can I eat healthy and maintain exercise while on night shift and sleeping three hours per day? That was asked by Ed Dime. Wow, three hours per day. Uh, well, yeah, first, if I was, if you were a client of mine, first of all, I would find a way to increase that from three to anything is better than three, really. And yeah, at least getting it up to the recommendations are seven to nine, but damn, at least six hours would be nice. Yeah, it's just really not good for your health at all to be getting that amount of sleep. Mm -hmm. And especially you may not notice it as much in the short term because you're used to that amount of sleep. But especially in the long term, there has been a lot of studies linked to poor sleep. And I'll just do a little bit of research um, because it's it really isn't that nice at all. Yeah, unfortunately, there is a lot of data out there showing that consistently getting inadequate sleep 
does result and can lead to a range of comorbidities, a reduced lifespan, reduced quality of life, and they've actually shown that inadequate sleep is a form of carcinogen. And if you want to learn more about sleep, I'd highly recommend looking up Matthew Walker. He is arguably probably the world's number one sleep expert. He actually wrote this book called Why We Sleep. Just phenomenal. He is on a range of different podcasts, including Joe Rogan, also um, Dr. Oh my God, I always get this wrong because of the Australian accent. (laughs) Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Um, So he's interviewed on there. So I'd highly recommend going on there. But yeah, first thing Jack and I would address is getting you some more sleep. And then it says, how can I eat healthy and maintain exercise? So night shifts, I'm not too familiar with night shifts. I know that there is this great role model in the fitness industry. Her name is Sherelle Grant, and she is actually a night shift worker herself, but she's also a WBFF bikini pro, and she shares a lot of her journey on Instagram. So if you wanna look her up, just it's Sherelle Grant. And she shares a lot of tips and tricks on how she manages these things. But for eating healthy, I think just being prepared. So dedicating a certain amount of time every single week to doing meal preparation could really save you a lot of time in the long run. Or if that's too much, possibly looking into a meal delivery service such as, you know, you foods or light and easy, these sorts of things. And maintaining exercise. What would you say about that? So I'd probably look at joining a 24-hour gym and you, because you do work a night shift, you will just have to reschedule things and maybe just do things the opposite how other people would. So sleeping during the day, getting your exercise in before or after your shift or yeah, wherever you can fit it in. So ultimately, you know your schedule best and when you feel the best at different times. So yeah, it's difficult to say with precision without knowing a bit more about your schedule. Yeah, it's really just going to be about time management here. And also in terms of eating healthy, making sure that you are bringing and pre-preparing meals for your night shift because Jack and I both did work in a hospital last year. We were working in the dietetics department, but we are always at the nurse's station. And there's definitely a tendency for nurse's stations to always have some sort of little corner that has like a bag of chips and a half-eaten cake and a bag of candies or something. And I could see how when on a night shift, if you were hungry, a little bit sleep deprived, needed a pick-me-up, it would be tempting to grab that bit of a sugar hit. So preparing healthy snacks and meals like boiled eggs, fruit, handfuls of nuts, um, things that maybe even don't even necessarily need to be refrigerated and having those on hand so that they can be a more nutritious alternative and help you towards your fitness and health goals compared to having to resort to that little corner at the nurse's station. Yeah. All right. So we will move on to another question. So the next question is by Junior Yang, and that is balancing progressive overload with muscle confusion. So this is just a Pretty simple one for me. Ultimately, progressive overload will always be king. And yeah, muscle confusion isn't really a thing in my books. Mm-hmm. It's a nice it's a nice idea, but unfortunately we know that it takes around eight to 12 weeks for your body to neurologically adapt to a certain movement before you start actually inducing muscle hypertrophy. 
So for example, if you were to start squatting for the first eight to 12 weeks, that's like two to three months, your squats really only going to progress from neurological factors and you just getting more comfortable with the movement pattern. And you gotta wait up to three months before you actually start seeing some decent gains. Mm. So yeah, if you are looking to change exercises, I would really only be doing it for a couple reasons. That might be one, because you really just aren't enjoying the one that you're doing. Two, you really are plateaued on it and you can't um, increase the load anymore. And the third one would be because it is causing you injury or it just feels uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. yeah, I totally agree with that. But yeah, not enjoying like, yeah, I would. you just need a good reason to switch it up and like maybe changing one or two exercises every meso. Um, but anything more than that, then I think it might be a little bit too much frequency. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily like a brand new exercise. It would just be kind of a different variation of that exercise. So for example, moving from a barbell RDL into a dumbbell RDL or a barbell bench into a dumbbell bench, something along those lines, not something like completely, completely different. Cool. Okay. So next question. So this was asked by Elena, who I believe is studying her master's of dietetics this year. Pretty exciting. She said, can you tell us a bit more about your placements and what they entailed? So I'm going to let you start. So yeah, our placement journey was uh, quite interesting because we, we did it with a prep, which was fun, but yeah, I was at QE2 hospital and Tierra was at the Royal Brisbane. Yeah. So QE2 is a quite a small hospital compared to Royal Brisbane. And yeah, it only has five floors, two wards on each floor and which is, yeah, minuscule compared to anywhere else. And basically the students there, we got uh, free reign really. We got to see patients on each ward. So we got a very good comprehensive look at different types of patients, which was very nice. Uh, the only thing with QE2 was because it was small there, you don't really have many high-risk patients there. You, it's a very certain demogra- demographic, which is mainly older older people, mm. and yeah, chronic chronic disease-related things, so such like diabetes, like heart failure, um, those sorts of things, like maybe surgery, which is maybe a little less common. But yeah, like overall, it was definitely a useful experience. Like I definitely wouldn't go into hospital after having that experience, but it was definitely useful. And yeah, a typical day for me there would be, basically we would work in partners, so two student dietitians, and we would basically see uh, anywhere up to two to five patients a day, and basically assess what their nutritional requirements were, and if they needed any dietetics assistance, if they did devise an intervention for them and help them in the best way that we could and liaise with any other allied health professionals or doctors that we could, such as the speech pathologists, physios, any doctors, and so on and so on. So we really, since at QE2 was mainly things like making sure that people ate enough and basically preventing any malnutrition and making trying to get food into people as easily as possible. Yeah, I think that's what you're going to find when you're working in a clinical setting. Probably 90% of your cases are just going to be what's called high protein, high energy. So that's essentially making sure, sure that patients consume enough calories and they consume adequate protein. Because when someone is recovering from surgery or 
for example, they're just immunocompromised, they're just sick and they're laying in a hospital bed all day not getting any activity, one, their muscles can start to waste if they're not consuming enough protein and they're not giving themselves that stimulus in order to maintain or grow any muscle. And also, you need to make sure that they are not even necessarily eating at maintenance, like you definitely want to aim for maintenance, but even slightly in a surplus because your metabolic requirements are going to be increased when you are recovering from an illness. So that's really what we kind of went around doing was diet recalls, calculating how many calories, how much protein all these different patients are eating, and then helping strategize with them, okay, how can we get you know an extra 300 calories into you, or how can we get an extra 40 grams of protein into you? And based off the types of food that the hospital provides and the types of food that the patient enjoys, you can build strategies um, for how they can try to consume that food. And then monitoring and evaluation, essentially you check in on them every few days, making sure that they are meeting their requirements. You're also checking for things like their body weight, making sure their body weight isn't going down. You can also do what's a, a bit of a physical exam. So this physical exam, it's called a subjective global assessment or an SGA. So what that entails is just looking at like someone's eyes or you get someone to pinch their index finger and their thumb and you look at for any muscle wasting there in the muscle, you look at their biceps, you look at their triceps, you look at their thighs and their knees and their calves. Essentially, you're just trying to look for if there's any muscle wasting and if muscles are separating um, from the fat. And that can help to indicate someone's health status just subjectively. Yeah. So, Jack, I'm sorry, I totally interrupted you. <laughs> Did you have anything else to add? I'm so sorry. No. <laughs> yeah, so similar to Jack, I was in the hospital too. I was at the Royal Brisbane, and we probably got, because the Royal Brisbane is a very, very large hospital, we probably got more patients who were more critically ill. And similar to Jack, I would be with a partner. We would see patients throughout the day. And yeah, just checking in on different patients um, in different, so you'd usually be allocated to a specific ward. So someone might be allocated to a renal ward or someone might be allocated to a surgery ward or a ward looking at people who have chronic liver disease, things like this. And then you do need to tailor nutrition specific to that patient. So for example, some with someone with kidney failure, you're really going to have to be monitoring their electrolytes there. So you just do a range of different things in the hospital. Um, unfortunately, it just, it really wasn't for me. I'm one of those people who don't even like being in doctor's offices. So being in a hospital all of last year was just really, really mentally challenging. And I was quite unhappy. Um, yeah, it was really, really tough, but I pushed through and it taught me perseverance. And yeah, I'm just glad that that part of our dietetics degree is over. Uh, certainly a learning experience though, because I'm actually really glad I got the experience in some way because before I entered the hospital setting, I was always one of those people and really still am at heart that really believes in nutrient quality of food 
And I just didn't understand why in the hospital, you know, they would, like this was in my first few weeks, I didn't understand why they would be encouraging people to eat their dessert before their green beans or um, drink like very sugary juices or have muffins. I didn't understand that, but I'm really glad that I had that experience because it taught me that in certain circumstances and in, depending on the context, nutrition is a lot more than just nutrients. Overall, nutrition is about getting adequate calories into your body so that you can survive and so that your heart can keep beating. And that was really tough for me um, to accept at first, but I saw it firsthand that, you know, even if these people were eating quote unquote unhealthy foods like chocolate bars and chips, they could still be losing weight. Um, and sometimes you need to use chocolate bars and chips to your advantage in that very acute setting so that people get enough calories into them so that they recover and so that they don't experience any other consequences down the line. For example, someone has to have another surgery because their body just didn't wasn't able to repair itself no matter what they were eating. So I'm really happy I had that experience. It made me a lot open-minded towards what nutrition means and how it really, really depends on the individual and the context. But yeah, um, other than uh, hospital, which made up the majority of our placements last year, we were also in clinics. So yeah, the main clinics we went to was the UQ student clinic and the Tawang clinic as well, which was also a student-led clinic. And basically we saw more general population clients there, especially at UQ, we saw maybe a bit more athletic side for those athletes that came in. And yeah, that was a great diversity in just having to deal with people who weren't critically ill or um, yeah, just a bit more general and had mm -hmm. um, more general requirements and were really just looking to be healthier as opposed to regaining weight or making sure that they stay on top of their energy intake and things like that. So Yeah, it was certainly a more positive environment. Yeah, that was, I really, Jack and I both really enjoyed the clinics, I think. And then this year, our placements, so I'm working with Light and Easy right now. And for the next five weeks, I'll be working with them. And essentially my project is trying to see how Light and Easy can target more male customers. And I've got a lot of ideas and I'm absolutely loving the prac right now. I feel like I get to be really creative and I'm bringing, you know, just a whole range of different ideas and hypotheses to the team there. And I get to work with the marketing team and the dietitians there. And man, I, I'm really enjoying this prac. So yeah, that's what I'm working on right now. And what's, what's your prac right now? So I'm working with a company called Procurement Australia, mm. which sounds really cool, but it's... <laughs> It's basically a company that purchases goods and services for other companies and they have a very large buying power, which is why they can do it more cheaply than other companies. And I'm assessing the staff there and what their current activity and nutrition patterns are like. And I'm doing that via a survey. Once I get the survey results back, I'm then developing some resources, either video format, audio format, or written, or any other type of format, whatever they want, and basically tailoring it to their current issues they're having now, and then basically writing up a report on that. So, yeah. Mm. And then, yeah, other than that, we're both at Inspire Health, which we've talked about before, but that's basically a 
allied health company. So physios, sports dietitians, exercise physiologists that cater for the more athletic population and other athletes as well. So Mm -hmm. yeah, and that should be really fun. Jack and I are starting there next Saturday. So in one week. And again, we are just learning from sports dietitians and seeing them in action. And we'll also be developing some resources for them, including like supplement resources and things that they can provide their clients with, which I'm really excited about because I love supplement research. So the next question is by Corinne, and that is, is there such a thing as too much protein? Hmm. So what do you think? Well, yeah, there's a lot of, if I asked my mum, then she would say yes. She says I eat too much protein, but then again, I'm the dietitian. So So I think that clinically, there's only such thing as too much protein, one in people with renal issues. We do know that if you do consume too much protein, because a main major component of protein is nitrogen and nitrogen does need to be excreted by the body and that is done via the kidneys. If you're eating a diet very, very high in protein, you are going to put a lot of stress on your kidneys because they're gonna be working very hard to excrete this nitrogen. Now that's only if you are clinically diagnosed with a renal issue. For the rest of the healthy population, I'm not aware, are there any other issues? Like there are certain very special cases like of metabolic and genetic disorders where some people can't even consume branched chain amino acids, especially leucine. It's called like maple syrup urine disease. Um, Other like uh, PKU. Mm. There's these very, very special like little genetic disorders, but for damn 99% of the population, probably too much protein, you're going to be all right. Yeah. I think the other factor is also, which I'll, I almost always bring it back to this, but if you are consuming like four to five grams per kilo of protein a day, so that if say for me, it's around 80 times four, so that's 320 grams of protein a day, then you can most definitely be using that in more effective fuel sources, such as carbohydrates, which will fuel your training better. So it's not as, it's not going to be harmful for you necessarily, but there will be a more effective way for you to use it. Yeah, exactly. And the current literature shows that, you know, anywhere between 2.3 to 3.1 grams of protein per kilogram of lean body mass is all you really need to retain muscle mass maximally when you're in an energy deficit. And that does come out to be between 2 to 2.5 grams of total body weight of protein. And But they have done studies, longitudinal studies, like for uh, two years or more, on these people who, especially bodybuilders, who eat over four grams of protein per kilogram um, of body weight per day, and they have no health issues. Their bloods are totally fine. Their kidneys are totally fine. Metabolically, they are still very, very healthy. But yeah, like Jack alluded to, just make sure that so much protein isn't restricting you from getting other nutrients that you could benefit from in your diet. So just two more questions to go, which will, and then we'll finish it up. So the first one is by Jake, and that is a full body workouts, a good long-term way of training or more only for newbies. Okay, so I think that full body workouts are awesome, definitely for newbies. If you're going to the gym like three days a week, I definitely recommend doing three full body workouts per week. But 
after you are, you know, graduate from being a newbie and you're more of an, I guess, intermediate lifter, it depends on your schedule. So for example, if you could still only make it to the gym three days per week, no matter how many years you've been lifting for, you would still benefit from a full body workout because it would be covering your bases of hitting each muscle group two times per week. Mm. Yeah, I think scientifically speaking, bro splits where you hit one body part each week is, yeah, a thing of the past. And we really want to be focusing on maximally stimulating our muscles as soon as they're recovered. So say if you hit your chest on Monday, it might be recovered by Wednesday. So why wait until the following Monday when you could provide extra stimulus and potentially grow more muscle? So Mm. um, like Tierra said, you should be scheduling it more around how many times you're going each week. So say if you're going twice a week, obviously two full bodies, three times a week, you could do an upper, lower and a full body or three full body sessions. And then going on from four days a week, then that's when you would probably do like upper, lower, upper, lower, or so on. So um, yeah, definitely not full body if you're training regularly. Yeah, Jesus, you would definitely be impairing your performance there and your recovery because if you're trying to do full body five days a week, I don't even care if you're doing different exercises every day, you are going to be sore and you will not be maximizing your potential in the gym. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I think that's about it for that one. Cool. All right, last one. So this last question just says in big capital letters, reverse dieting from Sebastian Howard. So yeah, we could probably do multiple episodes. We could do a whole series on this topic, but um, (laughs) to put it, yeah, both Tierra and I had to go through this last year, around this time last year. So I feel like we know a decent amount about it, Mm -hmm. but just to summarize it briefly, Reverse diet dieting is basically the term used for when you're coming out of a show. So obviously then you're very low in body fat, your hormones are out of whack, all that sort of stuff. And the key factors in coming out there is to get everything back to normal as soon as possible. Um, Body fat wise, health wise, hormonal wise, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So what you really want to be looking at here is first day after your show get yourself up to maintenance calories don't keep doodling around you know trying to increase 10 grams of carbs one week and five grams of fat the next week otherwise you are you're essentially just staying in a deficit and this is one thing so there's a difference between a reverse diet and a recovery diet recovery diet was kind of coined by the team at 3DMJ, they are a bit different. So reverse dieting originally was for competitors coming out of their shows. They still wanted to try to stay lean while building up their calories. So they would take that approach of first week, add 20 grams of carbs, you know, and slowly build it up there. But what they were finding was that even after like literally like a month or two, they're still in a deficit. Hormonally, they are still compromised and they're still essentially suffering. God, being complain, you were, it's supposed to be literally for like just a few days of your life. You don't wanna prolong that. So essentially get yourself up to maintenance calories and then keep increasing calories from there. I'll just add a few things to what Tierra said. So uh, the what 3DMJ actually recommends is around um, five to 10% of your body weight on stage and gaining that in around a month of post-show. So say if you weigh 
uh, 100 kilos on stage, just using that because it's an easy number. So you'd be gaining five to 10 kilos in one month post-show. And that's a broad range, but you should be basing that on how you're feeling. The other thing is you wouldn't necessarily be bringing the whole point of maintenance calories is that you're at a maintenance. So if you're you eating your maintenance maintenance calories post-show, you're not going to be gaining weight. What you really want to be doing is maybe going up to, if you're having high days, using those high day numbers or just making sure you're in a quite a uh, strong surplus so you can gain enough weight post-show. But you really don't want to be lingering around like only gaining one or two kilos in one month. You want to be quite aggressive in that first month, but obviously don't overdo it and gain like 10 kilos in a week or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really going to be about finding those numbers that work best for you. So get your calories up, keep building them up until like progressively gaining weight until you feel comfortable until you feel back to normal. It will probably take you honestly a few months to feel back to normal and fully have your hormonal profile restored, especially you can take bloods if you want. Jack, neither Jack or I did. I think it would be pretty damn interesting to do it next time we prep though, just out of curiosity. But yeah. Well, I did I did I actually did get my bloods done for my testosterone. After, this was after your show. This was yeah, well, probably like three or four months after my show and my testosterone was still below the low reference range. Mm-hmm. So that's how long it takes. It does take a long time to get back to normal and I was probably eating like 4000 plus calories a day then still. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if Tierra and I are more than happy to help anyone go through that um, post-show period um, and yeah, begin your off-season and continue your off-season. So if you ever need any help, just um, DM us. Yeah, it's just it's as important as prep. You really should have guidance during that period. Otherwise, you can create a very, very unhealthy relationship with food and just build upon body dysmorphia. It can be an ugly time. So it is really good to have assistance there. Sweet. All right. We answered a lot of questions. To finish off with, we will quickly say one thing that we learned this week. Do you want to go first? Sure. So I learned that the only thing free in this world is the information we put out on this podcast. (laughs) Why are you saying that? Well, just my experience this week with one of my projects has been a bit frustrating because I've been trying to get this survey out to all the people at this company that I'm working with. And yeah, it's very difficult. Like I need to pay for this. I need to pay for that. And yeah, I've had the survey ready for a few days now, but just haven't been able to get it out. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So one thing that I learned this week, shout out to Kate Meller. She's one of my clients um, competing in a few weeks in bikini and fitness. And yesterday we were at the gym and we were talking about people's squat forms. And sometimes you see people on Instagram, for example, Mike Isertel, and with his squat, he has his arms very wide apart. And I was always like, hmm, that's interesting. Like, Maybe that's more comfortable for him, but I never actually knew biomechanically why he had his arms so wide apart. And Kate let me know that some people's backs are like just the width of their back is that in order to build tightness, because when you are doing a squat, it's not just lower body, it's upper body as well. You do need to contract your lats. You need to contract your traps as well and the muscles in the back of your scapula in order to really hold yourself upright but some people's whose backs are so wide like mike isertel he's massive 
<laughs> in order to get into that position, they have to have their arms quite wide. So that's something that I learned. So thank you, Kate. All right, so we're going to wrap it up here, guys. Thank you again so much for listening to our 14th episode. Pretty happy we are continuing to crank out these every single week, given that uni is freaking hectic. But yeah, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, tell your friends about the podcast. We'd love to get our messages out there and we will catch you next week. See you next week, guys.